What's up, little context listeners? This is your brother host, Matt, and today we're doing things a little bit different. This is going to be a film review for the third top-grossing film of 2018, The Incredibles 2. Now, it's a bit of a change of pace from our normal loosey-goosey, goofy infotainment, but we think you're really going to have a good time with this one because we sure had a blast. So strap in and enjoy. listeners to this episode of A Little Context Unhinged. My name is Matt. My name is Devin. And we are brother and sister. Today we are going to talk about a movie that we watched today uh, and I was taking notes throughout. Devin was not and we're going to go through my notes. Devin, do you want to introduce the movie or introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Devin as We've established I am Matthew's sister. We today watched The Incredibles 2 from 2018. Um, If you have not seen this film, there will be spoilers. If you have watched this film, hopefully this will shed some light on some things. Yeah, yeah. I think it might or it might not, depending on who you ask, I'm going to be fleshing out some of my theories about the film which I have done with a few different people, uh, who, who none of which seem to agree with me at first. <laughs> I'm eager to hear what Devin has to think after we watch this together. It's both fresh in our minds. The, the playing field should be perfectly level for this little excursion into my opinionated nonsense. And just as a precursor, we did not watch The Incredibles 1 today. We skipped straight to the second one. I actually don't think that we'll be making any allusions to the first one. Oh, I am going to, yeah. I... <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. So maybe I'll be at a disadvantage. Well, I haven't watched the first one recently either. There is some basic groundwork that was laid out in the first one that I think is a little bit telling about the second and the biases that are held by the writers. So Okay. In the, the first movie, it follows the Parr family who become the Incredibles. And there is, I guess also spoilers for the first one, uh, there is this character named Syndrome who is the villain. And we first meet Syndrome in the beginning when he is uh, like a 12-year-old boy who is a super fan of Mr. Incredible, who is the protagonist for the film. And... He gets rejected. Mr. Incredible doesn't want anything to do with him because he sees him as a liability. And it kind of festers into this resentment. And Buddy seeks his revenge by becoming the supervillain Syndrome, whose method of being a villain is to manufacture weapons and other devices that simulate superpowers like the ability to fly or the ability to melt things with laser beams that ordinarily would come out of somebody's eyes for some reason in this world. The line that sticks out in my head is, once everyone is super, no one will be. So Mm -hmm. his big crime is 
creating equality for for everybody to have access to the same kind of privileges that superheroes <laughs> have. Um, uh, which is a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Okay. I mean, he does also unleash this crazy tank thing to destroy the city, which I don't know the name of. It is the city of the Incredibles. And the plot was to let it cause some destruction, and then he would show up and save the day using his devices that he designed, and the whole thing would be designed by him uh, to show the world that there are these devices that enable people to have these superpowers and fight super villainy on their own. So he, he tries to stage a catastrophe that he can fix. And there are echoes of that in the second film. I think that's fair to say. Yes. And hearing you describe it, I'm noticing more uh, similarities in theme than I would have remembered. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think that that's also because I am biased. My, what I'm doing is I'm calling out the movies for being biased uh, by explaining them through my biased lens. <laughs> well, I would also venture to say that another similarity is that the villains in each film use technology and technology could also be seen as the catalyst of villainy. Yes. And I, I would like to explore that later. Hopefully we'll have time after I get through all of my 22 notes to <laughs> discuss some other patterns in the Incredibles franchise. But let's get started. I took these notes in sequence as we were watching the movie uh, and they all have to do with the political implications of the story, which most people who watch this movie do not care about. <laughs> but I am going through a phase in my life that I am calling the Red Scare 2, Electric Boogaloo, where I'm watching everything that Hollywood puts out in this lens of, like, how are they trying to shove capitalism down my throat? And there is a lot to work with in The Incredibles, too. So, are you ready? Yes, I'm I'm ready. All right. So, note one, I have illegal personhood equals wrong, which I agree with. Some of these notes are me saying, like, no, it's, this is a good point. I agree with this. So the characters in The Incredibles 2 are forced to live underground and hide the fact that they have superpowers because it has been deemed illegal. To be a superhero. Yes. So... Their existence is deemed illegal. Now, illegal personhood as we know it in the United States has to do with immigration status. And it is a screwed up thing that, that we shouldn't be calling people illegals or something like that. Their uh, residents might not be legally legitimate, but you know, while they're here, they are still people. And their existence shouldn't be a crime. I'd say the same about homeless people. Yeah. That it exists on the same spectrum there of illegal personhood. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We are seeing that a lot now with, um, you know, homeless parks being split apart by police and disrupted in pretty alarming ways. Uh, that's that is in the news. I think it's a it's a particularly big issue in Los Angeles, at least uh, the stories that I'm seeing. Mm. And also on the note of homelessness, I don't think I even have a note about. No, I do have a note about this. Also on the note of homelessness, there is a very convenient dodging of homelessness in this movie that doesn't really get addressed. That is <laughs> very convenient. 
Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll get there on uh, note six. So let's let's move on to note two. Do you have any other comments on note one? Uh, illegal personhood. No, I agree that it's wrong. All right, cool. Note two: politicians slash lawmakers slash, and I put in parentheses as if we're whispering, billionaires have the power to change laws. That is a big plot point in the movie. In fact, it is the central conflict is that they are trying to change the law in order to reverse this illegal personhood that our protagonists are dealing with, which is, I think, fine. But there is this this almost hand wavy like it's not that hard. You just got to play the, the right tricks here in order to change these laws. We can do it. And the people who endeavor to change these laws, the Dever family are billionaires and they use their privilege and resources as billionaires to make it happen. And it's not presented as a problem that they do that. And they were essentially controlling the media? Yes, absolutely. Yes, that that was their, uh, that's how they made their money is they owned a media company, which also kind of plays into further themes and what they paint as villainy that I'm not sure I'm fully sold on. Um, I thought it was a tech company. Uh, tech media. Okay. Yeah. Uh, three. Note three. This is a conversation between Helen and Bob Parr, the parents in The Incredibles, uh, also known as Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible. Helen says, you should follow laws. Bob says, what if you disagree with the laws? Those aren't the exact words. I do have some verbatim quotes. But that was like a conversation at the dinner table where... Bob was expressing frustration about having to hide and live a a life as a second-class citizen because he has superpowers. And Helen saying that the laws exist the way they do for a reason, and if we didn't follow them the way they were written out or follow the procedures to change them, the world would be in chaos. I'd like to say that like the second-class citizenship that they were mulling over was him getting a real job and really just one of them getting a job. Yeah. Like that's not really being a second class citizen. That's like, I mean, at least in today's standards, that's like real privilege. Yeah. (laughs) um, I guess this takes place in like the sixties. So that might've been more commonplace. You only need one, one earner in the family, but really it's not like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. So it takes place in the 60s. It's a different time, and the amount of work somebody has to do in order to make ends meet is different. Who's expected to do the work or what work? Like gender roles are a lot more prominent. They're at least prominently implied in this movie, though they aren't addressed as something that needs to change. The status quo is like really happy. They're they're cool with the status quo. And the the line is, I need to get a job in two weeks or we're homeless was a particular point of anxiety after they had been arrested for being involved in the destruction of what looked like millions upon millions of dollars of damage to the city trying to stop the underminer and then being let go without actually facing accountability. Like They they suggest that there's illegal personhood in being a superhero because it is a plot point and they are you know, hiding their identities to protect themselves. Uh, but they are literally in police custody for causing damage. And there doesn't seem to be any persecution or unfair consequence that they face for not only 
revealing themselves as being superheroes, but for doing the thing that superheroes were declared illegal for doing, which was intervening and causing damage. Yeah, and it, Lucius Frozone even says, I knew that they would let you go. Right, suggesting that it's not actually a big deal. That it's kind of this fabricated problem. <laughs> but, you know, they're supposed to follow the laws, but then they broke them and they didn't experience any consequences. And Bob is making a big deal about it. And Helen's like, no, but we need laws, even though they don't apply to them. These are some of the contradictions within the story that kind of stick out to me, but don't seem to stick out to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's just move on. Note four. The conflict introduced between Winston and Evelyn. Winston and Evelyn Dever are the uh, brother and sister billionaires that are owners of this tech media company called DevTech or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the position seemed to be Winston saying superheroes are cool. They would have saved dad had they been legal. And Evelyn saying, Dad had an alternative, which was the safe room, but chose not to change with the times and rely on himself and instead decided to try to rely on superheroes who failed him. Their father, who was also a very rich business owner of the company that they now own, tried to protect himself from some burglars by calling for superheroes, but the burglars shot him before any superheroes showed up. Right. All right. Note five. This is a phrase that comes up, I think, twice in the movie, once in the beginning and once near the end. And that phrase, this is an exact quote, make all superheroes legal again. Mm -hmm. And that was said by Winston Dever, the son that is really happy that superheroes are back and uh, wants superheroes to become legal so that he can celebrate superheroes the way that his dad did. The way that he wants to go about convincing people that superheroes should be legal again is by using body cams and then use his private media company to spread this footage and change the public's mind by showing the situations of the superheroes and what they're doing to save the day from their perspective so that people actually get like how hard and action-packed their job is. Do you have any comments, Devin? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely similar to body cams of police forces meant to, you know, defend the use of force. With the body cam footage in this film, you got to see the intent behind the destruction. Like, even when Elastigirl was saving people's lives and people were applauding that, there was still destruction to the city. And at least with the point of view from the superheroes' body cams, you could see that they were doing everything in their power to prevent that from happening. It was an effective method. Was it still... I mean, it was still... a a use of power and resources by using a private media company to change the public perception. It was propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, in the conceit of the movie, this worked because the superheroes truly were the good guys and they truly were doing everything in their power to reduce damage, save lives and make sure people were safe. The argument that was proposed 
They make a point of it, too, to acknowledge that the reason superheroes were made illegal is because they were causing property damage to businesses, to the city infrastructure. And they called for Elastigirl in particular to head this propaganda campaign because her methods caused the least amount of damage that they could see. Like it cost the least amount of money when Elastigirl was on the scene. Right. It was all very financial. It's like a lot of fiscal decision making here. Now, note six, the convenient dodging of homelessness. So the the house that the pars move into in the movie is a tricked out mansion with all sorts of automated smart home features that are mind-blowingly advanced even by today's standards. It's described in the movie as a passion project of an eccentric billionaire that wanted to come and go unnoticed so there were a bunch of different hidden exits. So my note written down here is, an eccentric billionaire built the perfect house for superheroes that the pars have access to thanks to a different eccentric billionaire. So... It, it It is very much like billionaires swoop in and save the day. Deus Ex billionaire. Everything good that happens in the movie can be thanks to a billionaire doing whatever they wanted unchecked. If the billionaire had been stopped from doing these things, none of these good things would have happened. You're right. And that's definitely not something that I paid attention to. Yeah. This was, this was initially what bothered me about the movie the first time I watched it. I, probably in 2019, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was, it was when I was moving out here that I first started ranting to you about how The Incredibles 2 is pro-billionaire propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> the, these are notes supporting that theory and also uh, celebrating the things that I like about the movie because there is a lot to like. But that in particular, the fact that so much of it seems to be like, hey, billionaires should not be prevented from doing whatever the hell they want uh, still bothers me. Note 7. The villain created the crime by manipulating people through screens. Uh, Oh, I didn't look up if this counts as false flag, Uh, but it's like a staged event, very similar to the first movie. So the villain in this movie is called the Screen Slaver, and what their power is is they hypnotize people into submission, and then those people do the bidding of the Screen Slaver through this hypnosis and mind control method. And it's all through the screen. Now, I am inclined to believe that this is a metaphor for something, perhaps social media. And it's an interesting one. I'm not saying I wholly disagree with it, though I have a feeling it's kind of going like the other way than what my belief of misinformation campaigns and mind manipulation on social media, how it actually exists versus, you know, my perception of it versus the writer's perception of it. That is the groundwork for the villain, the screen slaver. Note eight. Why would they change math? (laughs) I loved that throughout the film. It just seemed like such a especially through the pandemic. I'm sure a lot of parents were feeling frustrated with having to help their children with schoolwork. Yeah. But I loved it. Bob Parr was having trouble helping Dash with his math homework. And he continually was like, why would they change math? Math is math. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I like that, too. I thought it was a great line. I I think it it kind of 
illustrated Bob Parr's character and a lot of common sentiments. When things changed in American education to the common core, there were like new ways of doing math equations and different methods that were designed by educators, but they were different and people had a hard time accepting the change, which yeah, I could understand. It does seem like an odd thing to do. It's something that you know, a parent, if they learned one way, they would have to relearn with their kids to really understand what's going on. But it's also one of those things where it's like, Bob doesn't want to change with the times. There's a, a common attitude, which is just don't change things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> or if they change, change them back. In Bob's defense, he stayed up all night to figure out this homework and he helped Dash with it in the mornings before his test. Yes, yeah, and I, I do want to celebrate the depictions of, of parenthood and what makes for an effective parent in this movie, which seem to be throughout. The way to be a good parent is to listen to your kids and do what you can to assist them in what they're working on and not impose your will on them, you know? Like, play to your, your kid's strength, listen, and figure out what's going on. Like, Bob didn't start... He struggled to take care of the kids. He didn't start really rolling with the punches until he stopped trying to make their existence fit his expectations and instead took the time to figure out what was going on with them. The other big thing that I took note of in the parenting realm is that he apologized when he realized he had hurt his daughter. It was unintentional, of course, but he genuinely apologized for it. And I think that's really big. Mm -hmm. Like even even though you're the parent and you're the adult, your your children are still human and deserve that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he treated his kids with a lot of dignity. I think those kids are in a good home. I don't have any complaints about the parenting. I think that that was rock solid. I think that's a strength of the movie. And there are plenty of strengths in this movie that I... I do have notes of, and I think that that one in particular uh, stuck out to me the first time I watched it, remains true. I like the way parenting is depicted in this movie. I don't think that it's it's necessarily an attainable goal for a lot of people. Like, you know, there, there are single mothers out there that don't have that support from their husband or partner to step in and watch the kids while she goes off and pursues a career, something like that. You know, there there's a lot in here going on, and it is very specific to this family. There is a lot of idealism, too. Uh, I think that when it comes to the parenting, this family has everything going for it. And one thing that we can say to the family's credit is that they don't abuse it, and they actually do work with each other and work to grow as people and as, you know, a, a family unit that is supportive and team-oriented. I think that was cool. Yeah. Where was I? I think that was number six. No, that was number eight. Why would they change oh. math? Number nine. <laughs> okay, this one, this one's like a little side note uh, that is also like one of the big things I keep seeing on Twitter and on social media as being one of the cruelest side effects of capitalism. So Jack-Jack, the baby... One of the running gags throughout the movie is that he has a bunch of different superpowers and he's figuring them out faster than anybody else is. And his first 
little adventure is fighting a <laughs> raccoon because the raccoon looks like a bandit. Uh, do you remember <laughs> the first thing Jack Jack fights the raccoon over is? And like basically It's a piece of trash. Like yeah. a, like a chicken leg or something, and he throws he throws it back in the trash can and puts the lid on it and says, Nope, this trash is not for you. Right. Yeah. So the first thing Jack Jack does is he won't let a raccoon steal food from the garbage. Which nowadays everyone's like, Why the hell are you locking dumpsters? If somebody's starving to the point that they're willing to eat food out of a dumpster, like there are people getting arrested for doing that, and this movie's very much like that's the way to do it. Just look at Jack Jack; he gets it. Yeah, I yeah, I I get where you're coming from with that. I know that it sounds like something of a stretch, but it's a little bit on the nose, right? It's a little bit. Yeah. I thought that was gonna get a laugh. I guess not. It's too depressing. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> ten. Oh, ten is, is me celebrating the movie. It does a good job with women as badasses. This much is cool. Like, I think that the women in this movie have really strong character development and character arcs. Their stories are fun and interesting. We see that in Helen, Evelyn, and Violet in particular. They each have very interesting characters. I thought that that was awesome. Yeah. I think it was I just... think it passes the Bechtel test. Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily. Evelyn and Helen have a bunch of conversations about, like, philosophy oh, well, they talk about politics yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> there, there's no question it definitely passes the Bechdel test it's I think it it can be viewed if we want to like celebrate it for feminist stuff it is a feminist movie for sure but like it it's like JK Rowling feminism it's got conditions ah <laughs> I I ugh. yeah I wouldn't go there because I think at least I've seen someone claiming Karen or Void as a non-binary character. Okay. I don't know if that is uh, canon or... They didn't clarify recognized. it. Recognized. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't recognize it within the movie, so we, we just have to assume that it's up for interpretation. And you're right. It, it doesn't seem like a transphobic film. I won't say that much, but it's, it's, it seems to be pretty anti-poor people. Or anti-people who don't have powers by birthright. Like, all of the good guys, it seems like. And when I looked up Incredibles villains, even Winston Dever is listed as a villain, even though his character... What? (laughs) Yeah, even though his character is very supportive of the heroes throughout. When I googled Incredibles villains, because I wanted to test a theory, the only villain that was listed, or the only character who was listed as a villain that had superpowers was Jack-Jack. What? (laughs) Jack-Jack was listed as a villain? I mean, he kind of makes sense. (laughs) What? That's... He's he's an obstacle. He's not a villain for evil deeds, but he's definitely, like, the antagonist for the babysitter in the first movie, and even Bob has, like, a really hard time. He... Jack-Jack is the biggest obstacle to him being an effective parent, even though he works with Jack-Jack. Like, he doesn't... There's there's no bad blood between them. Jack-Jack... <laughs> it's it's almost like... Uh, well, there, was, there was, like, the movements in literature. It was, like, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus God, man versus self, or something like that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Jack-Jack, I would describe it as man versus nature, <laughs> according, yeah. to this, according to this universe uh which is very fictional you can tell because like the rich people are nice to the par family (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what makes it fictional (laughs) 
Okay, yeah, you get the joke now? Great. <laughs> Sorry. Um, let's see. 11. Dickery racing people's memories is an uncool act of intrusive control. Uh, I also agree with this. Uh, what is the difference between that and changing people's minds by controlling what they see? Again, this is like a major theme through the film that I don't think gets fully developed or like full on declared that what Dicker does when he erases Tony's memory. Tony is the boy that Violet has a crush on. In the very first scene of the movie, Dicker erases his memory because uh, Tony saw Violet without her mask, but in her super suit and would be able to identify her as a superhero while superheroes are illegal. So that that happens and then Tony forgets the date that he agreed to go on with her or he asked her out, is that right? He asked her out. He asked her out and he when his mind was erased, he forgot even knowing her. Yeah. So of course he didn't show up for the date. Right. And this is one of those things where Violet points out accurately, like, that was not okay for you to do that. You know, erasing somebody's memory so that they can't use certain knowledge against you is, like, really freaking bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that that was not as developed as it should have been because Violet was angry mostly because too much of the memory was erased. Like, she was upset that his memory was erased at all without her permission. But yeah. is it even her right to give permission for that? Yeah. And, like, it kind of seemed like it It definitely could have been developed further. Yeah, it definitely could have been developed further. And the more that we're talking about it, the more it sounds like the thing that absolutely should have been developed further. <laughs> That's not cool. Like, all right. Is that something you do when somebody is a witness to a crime that you committed? It's like, I guess we got to erase their memory. <laughs> well, that's, li that's exactly what they did. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. But it is not framed in the way that they erased this dude's memory because he saw something he shouldn't have. It wasn't like a coercive act. It was like a necessary thing that we needed to do, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. If they hadn't done that, how do they know the family would have been safe? And that's the thing. You cannot let anybody know that this family is super because that's illegal. You can't let anybody know that they're committing crimes. It's wrong. Yeah, it's not like they need to stop committing crimes, which is hard when <laughs> the crime is existing as you are. And that's another one of the things that just kind of exists in this movie. There's not really a full development of how the world and society works, but it seems like the most corruptible place on the planet. Like the amount of manipulations of people's minds, whether it's erasing their memory or flashing a hypnotic screen in front of their eyes that they're highly susceptible to, the, the amount of control that somebody can impose on somebody else in this world is mind-boggling. It was also amazing to me how quickly the public rallied behind Elastigirl. It was like, I think, after her first save. Yeah. Maybe the first two. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, immediately. They they got the body cam footage of her doing badass motorcycle tricks and then stopping a train. And everybody immediately decided that they like superheroes now. The public yeah. showed up in droves, overwhelmingly positive reviews for Elastigirl, which is fine. I, I don't think that that's necessarily a problem in storytelling or in world building. 
No, it's just another supporting point that, yes, these people are very susceptible to the media. Yeah. And they behave in ways that are very convenient for the narrative of the writer, which that's allowed to be that way 100%. It's a movie. (laughs) It's it's a fictional movie. (laughs) Any story can be told. It doesn't have to make perfect sense. But the reality of it is not anything close to what we live in. It's a point worth making. Like, not only in the fact that superheroes exist in this world, but also just the the behavior of the general public is weird. They exist as a monolith. There aren't many. There, there, there are characters who don't have superpowers represented in the movie, but they're all special in some way. Like, you know, if you don't have a superpower and you're in The Incredibles, I think the only one who's living a normal life, just like a regular person doing regular person stuff, at least in The Incredibles 2, is Tony. Can you think of another character that's just someone, the pizza delivery guy that... (laughs) He was a victim. He was Um, a victim, yeah. uh, That's not a billionaire and not living in a mansion... No, that's the only character I can think of. There's the ambassador. She's a world oh, leader. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Where are we at? We're kind of deep into this recording, and um, we've got, looks like, 10 more notes to get through. So let's try and speed run these remaining 10. At <laughs> okay. the end, they, they're, they're going to be very easy to get through. Um, but, yeah, I think that note 11 is kind of insightful, is that Dicker's erasing people's memories to cover up criminal activity and the problem is that him doing so fucks up a date for a teenager <laughs> the problem yes that is the problem with this scenario uh note 12 a very diverse group of superheroes and it was it's a very diverse group of superheroes that that show up at you know halfway through yeah i think we can leave that note at that it's a very diverse group of superheroes that was kind of neat is that they Introduce a bunch of superheroes to say that there are other supers that now feel comfortable to exist because Elastigirl is changing the public perception of them. And it's not, you know, it's not just white guys. It's a very diverse group of superheroes. Different ages, powers. Shapes and sizes. It's great. 13. This was a line spoken at the party that introduced all of the diverse superheroes and it was Elastigirl who said this and she says a true believer would impose their will on the status quo it was in a weird political conversation between her and Evelyn Dever about what Winston would do as a billionaire and Evelyn is lamenting that he's like too much of an entrepreneur and just always trying to make money off of stuff. But that's not fully developed in the movie at all, either. Like, that's never a problem. <laughs> it's just a passing conversation. I find I found that line particularly weird. Is there further context we need? I feel like just saying a true believer would impose their will on the status quo doesn't really establish what a true believer is. And I think it is like a true Right, belie- so... Evelyn had asked Helen a question, what what would you say about this situation, basically? And Helen is saying, are you asking the believer in me or are you asking the cynic in me? And first she asks for the cynic's point of view and she gives this pro-capitalist, this is a buyer and seller market kind of response. And then she asks the 
the believer in Helen, and it's another pro-capitalist, you should be an entrepreneur and impose your will response. Right. Okay. Yeah, that does kind of frame it pretty <laughs> pretty accurately. It's kind of the same so, answer but, twice. And, but the true yeah. believer is like, I will be imposing instead of trying to sell this on people. It's like you, you can sell them on a new idea that changes their minds about superheroes. Or you can impose your will on the status quo that superheroes are normal and should be legal. And then Evelyn's criticism is, you sound just like him. You sound just like my brother. And it's like, yeah, because clearly they have two different political beliefs, Helen and Evelyn do. And Helen is more on the capitalistic society, law is law side of this. And Evelyn is a dirty socialist. Uh, <laughs> billionaire <laughs> billionaire yeah dirty socialist billionaire that is evelyn's character note 14 we're gonna move on to the next one uh my note is the science fiction elements are in a sweet spot of ambiguity and i based this on the line it's not an exact science bob by rick dicker who is being chastised for not preserving the memory of violet's date in Tony's head. And I kind of like that. I like it when science fiction isn't totally like clear cut and people just make mistakes where the the explanation is like, look, I did my best, but it's not an exact science. I thought that was a great line. I loved that. I agree. Uh, 15. Screen slavers disdain for consumerism. This was a monologue, voiceover monologue, as Elastigirl was going to confront the screen slaver in an apartment building and this was being broadcast over television. It was like this weird staying operation kind of deal where she tracked down the screen's labor's location based on the signal that was being sent out. So these are the notes that I have written to summarize the screen slaver's position and uh, mission statement, so to speak. And that is that people are too lazy or sheltered to take action or quote unquote participate in life while the system, quote-unquote, steals from them. And then the screen slaver claims control. You are no longer in control. I am. So that those are some lines, some commentary. And I think it's an interesting position that the screen slaver's motivation is to spur a response in the public. There's this level of disdain for people who just float along in the status quo. The screen slaver is, is trying to... I guess, emancipate people from that attitude. Like you are a slave. Yeah, we don't really get to see that, though. No, not really. It's implied that the screen slaver is doing what they're doing in order to emancipate people from their consumerism because they're essentially being controlled by the products that they're being told to buy and agreeing to buy out of convenience. Like that, the convenience factor. I think that this is a really good point. And I try to... Like, I actually believe this, that a lot of the decisions we make are based on what is convenient. And I think there is another quote that I have written down. Yes. So, we'll jump ahead. We'll just skip this one when we come to it. So, I have note 18. Evelyn says, ease over quality every time, saying that people will choose the easy option over the one that leads to like a lasting and quality impact on the world every time because whatever's easier, it's the path of least resistance and that's the one that people will tend to follow. I think that that is an interesting point. 
I think it's worth talking about. I'm glad that they brought it up, but they framed it as the villain's position. Like it's this evil idea that telling people, hey, you're only doing this because it's easy, not because it's in your best interest, is like the worst thing you can do in this movie. Yeah. Do you have any further comments on that? Um, no, I, for the most part, I agree that people will go for convenience. I think that if you have the resources to go for quality, people will. But part of convenience is convenience of your resources as well. Yeah, there there, there don't seem to be an abundance of convenient pathways to gaining the resources that you really need in order to, to attain that quality. That's right. My, that's my personal opinion. Note 16, comedic timing is brilliant. I think that was true throughout. Yes. It's a very yes. funny movie. <laughs> I want to celebrate that, you know, like the, the way that Bob has to deal with Jack-Jack. He like the warps out into another depraved. dimension. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's Completely so exhausted. Good. The baby disappears and he just goes for the cookie jar. He's like, Jack-Jack, want a cookie? Cha-Cha, want cookie? Yeah. <laughs> One of the funniest and best executed gags in a movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I completely agree. All right. Note 17. Elastigirl is giving a speech to, I think it was a, a group of superheroes and world leaders that says, with your pressure, we changed the right minds. Talking about how there was this public relations campaign to make superheroes seem palatable to the world again. This might have been this, the second time Winston pulled out the phrase, make all superheroes legal again, which has the same number of syllables as make America great again. It is one I, of those. So things. I counted. I don't think it does. Make right. all superheroes legal again. That's 10. Oh. Make America great again. That's eight. Shoot, I was two syllables off. This entire argument, this entire <laughs> list of, of points about The Incredibles 2 can all go out the window. Shit. <laughs> you know what? You know what we're going to do about this, Devin? What? We're going to delete that portion of this episode so that the audience doesn't know it exists. And then I was never wrong. Yeah. It's just like what Rick Dicker does to Tony. <laughs> it is just like Rick Dicker does to Tony, except we're not going to delete the entire episode. No, we're not going to delete the entire episode. We could if we wanted to. But you know what? Listen, I like it so far. Yeah. And there wouldn't be any ethical problems with making a mistake and just pretending like it never happened. Yeah. In, in this instance, it would be inconsequential. All right. So next is 18, which we already covered. 19. Oh, I, I have 19. Monopoly is okay when it's Edna, which is Edna establishing oh, yeah. a non-compete, saying that you will never buy a super suit from anyone ever again. <laughs> that isn't me. And neither will Frozone. Like, she yeah. looped Frozone into that deal. Like, that's not Bob Parr's call to make. This is true. Anyway. Yeah, I forgot that was, yeah, that that is a detail. But that's one of those things that's kind of screwed up, you know. I guess you can sign a contract and it makes sense. It is a contractual agreement, quid pro quo. She designed the baby's super suit for free and now that's the payment. It's just like rights to those designs. They They made it clear throughout the film too that Edna Mode's 
super suits are superior to any of the others. Like the one that Elastigirl got for this campaign was ripped. Ed, you wouldn't see that with Edna Mode's super suits. Right, right. Hers never ripped, but the one that Elastigirl was wearing did rip at the end, which is yeah, kind of wild, given the amount of you know the amount it had already been through prior to ripping. It's a miracle that those super suits exist in that world. Um, but you know, it's it's just one of those convenient fantasies, right? It's like trickle down economics. Hey. <laughs> Note 20. Evelyn's villain monologue makes her out to have trust issues and be untrustworthy. Her villainous impulses are rooted in her desire to make people less reliant on a system controlled by others, and her means of doing so is to break their trust through a forced act of betrayal. Which sounds convoluted. It's a little bit complicated at the end. Evelyn's whole thing is is she's saying, like, people should not have to rely on superheroes. They shouldn't be told that they can rely on superheroes because superheroes fail. They should be encouraged to work on themselves and make themselves equipped to handle a situation and not call on the intervention of an external entity that has been proven unreliable by history. And it's another similarity to the first film where it's the lay person can be their own superhero, basically. Right. Yeah. She's telling people, individuals that aren't superheroes. So she's telling Tony because he's the only guy that's not roped <laughs> up in this. You shouldn't have to rely on these superheroes to make the right call and defend yourself. But our system and society is telling you to not take responsibility for your own existence and instead have this convenient source of protection that has proven ineffective in the past. I think that the way that she wants to go about spreading this message is messed up. Like, that's that's not the way to do it. She's got trust issues, and she's trying to impose those trust issues on the entire public. She's basically saying, because I don't trust this situation, no one should. Right. And that's... You know, that's not cool. But the whole thing in this movie is we're going to change everybody's mind by showing them the right images so that they have the idea that serves our interests. Like the people are already being manipulated into thinking and feeling a certain way, sometimes very clearly and literally being mind controlled by what they're seeing on screens. It's 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 a little bit like too on the nose and also not making a point at all. You know, right, because it's so close and then it draws back by pointing that as the villain. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're so close, but they're missing the mark, in my opinion. Uh, 21. The billionaire got a good law signed into being. Just leave it to the liberal to trick the good people and benefits to abuse it. There was this summit where world leaders came together and signed a law saying superheroes are legal again. And then the first thing that happens is superheroes go like, now that we're legal, we're going to abuse our powers and our legitimacy. Thanks for letting us be legal now. And the only reason they're doing that is because they're being mind controlled by the person who says, hey, you should be able to rely on yourself. Yeah, again. Choice villain. Choice villain. 22. Movie ends with updated status quo where Par family keeps the mansion, new car, and everything is cool. Nothing bad happens to them. 
which makes sense for a comedy. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff that goes unresolved. You know, that that's just the nature of the movie. After they are mind controlled with these goggles that force them to do certain things and they go on their little villain escapade, they are, you know, snapped out of it by the glasses being broken. And then one by one, they emancipate the other superheroes from this skewed, uh, mind-controlled existence. And they save the day. They cause less economic damage, less property damage, because property damage is the worst thing to to their case. Um, And the law does get, you know, signed into being. A judge rules in its favor. It is now a real law that guarantees their protections as citizens. They have rights. That's good. And then they go back to the status quo, which is pretty much the way it was in the first movie, except they are now free to go fight crime. And also they have a sick new car, and I'm pretty sure they still live in that mansion. And neither of them has to have a real job. Right, right. They just have to fight bad guys. Yeah. Cool. So that's The Incredibles 2 through my lens as a fierce and unforgiving critic of the movie. (laughs) If we wanted to go back and look at other patterns within the Incredibles franchise, there was the one note that Devin made earlier about all of the villains relying on technology in order to compete with the superheroes. And there's this universal truth for the characters who have superheroes in this movie, which is none of them are evil. Nobody who has superpowers is selfish or unjust. The only people who are... Villains are people who are spiting the people who who were born with these natural powers. You're right. And those people use technology to get back at them. I think even like the Underminer kind of seemed like he could be somehow gifted with superpowers in one way or another, but it's not clear. It's just clear that he has mechanical hands and a giant ass drill. In the first movie, the first villain we meet is Bomb Voyage, whose powers all come from these bombs that are like specially designed and he uses to blow up things with precision. It's not like he's got a bomb hand that explodes stuff when he touches it. Syndrome doesn't have any actual superpowers. He just has gadgets. I cannot, I cannot think of a single character with superpowers in the Incredibles that uh, is evil. Can you? Except Jack Jack. (laughs) Jack Jack's not evil. He's just a problem. (laughs) Well, we don't know that yet. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's he a good point. Be. We don't know. Yeah, Jack-Jack might be a complete asshole. <laughs> I thought Dash seemed like he was a prime candidate for going to the dark side just based on his like machismo that he was constantly displaying. <laughs> it defines who I am. Yeah, it's a great line early on. It's describing his powers as the definition of his character. And we've never seen that go wrong people basing their identity on the uh the abilities of physical power that they possess i don't think it's a perfect movie i think it's like fun i think it's fun to watch and there are a lot of really funny moments but uh this is what i would describe as pure red propaganda and they sneak it in so well it's like the best example of it i've ever seen yeah you have convinced me it's definitely not something that I was paying attention to. I paid attention to the gender roles and the 
nuclear family structure. So I definitely watched this in a different lens, but I agree that it's definitely got a certain political stance. Yeah. I think it did a really good job with family dynamics and gender roles. The, and like that, that is what stuck out to people. I think it was the more compelling story told and it was told better than the other stuff. It was told well. I definitely had some qualms with it. Ooh, I mean, I would love to hear those. <laughs> um, I mean, the usual qualms, like Bob was generally unsupportive. I mean, he was supportive in his actions, but in his overall demeanor and words and like his tone, he was unsupportive of the idea of Helen a getting a private sector job. Oh um, yeah. And B being the the face of superheroes instead of him. Yes. Um, he he was a very jealous character and that super was super jealous. Clearly a struggle that he was experiencing throughout was watching his wife prosper in their shared professional field and having to come to grips with the idea that she's good at it. And to be fair, Helen was a little bit under she she what's the word um she underestimated bob's abilities to take care of the children yeah i think um, that that so that was a big conflict was bob figuring out how to be an effective father in the circumstances that they were in for the film and throughout helen was saying that she would come back at a moment's notice if he needed help and there was this implication that she didn't think that he'd be able to do it. And he calls her out for it. I thought that that conflict was really well laid out and well performed. And he makes a very significant effort to make sure that she's able to pursue her career and do what was agreed on with these billionaires. Though his motivation was very clearly in his self-interest too. They didn't hide that. He wanted her to succeed so that he'd be able to succeed. And he tells her that. Right. <laughs> So that he can eventually be the front runner. Um, yeah. So the motivations of certain characters, I mean, they're very raw. Yeah. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. I thought that that aspect was refreshing. There are a lot of people who yeah. try to sugarcoat their positions on things. But in this movie and the conflict between Bob and Helen, they were very clear about what their positions were, even when they weren't flattering to their egos. They were able to admit what they wanted, what they were comfortable with, and what they were anxious about, which isn't pretty. And, you know, they showed it. But I, I can understand. <laughs> I'm picturing the scene where Bob couldn't get out that he was proud of her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when they he, were on it the was phone. a real yeah. it was a real struggle for him to acknowledge that she was being successful. Yeah. And that's, yeah. That was that jealousy. I had my, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it was tough to tough to watch. I think she even said that was excruciating to watch. <laughs> 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 they were aware of it. Uh, so I'll say I love this movie. This is the third time I've seen it. The first two times we're both in theaters. And I will definitely watch it again, I'm sure. What I'll say is I respect this movie. I think that uh, the the comedy in it is really strong. I love the humor. 
but I, I don't think I can love it because on a fundamental level, I think that it's, it's, it's bad for my health. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is a good place to wrap up. Yeah, so uh, we just talked about The Incredibles 2 in depth. I cannot guarantee that in post and once this is all wrapped up, it will be intelligible. (laughs) Easy to follow (laughs) at all. It's easy for us because we just watched it and started discussing it today. Hopefully you derived enjoyment and will continue listening to our podcast. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun to put together. Yes. I hope you're doing well, and if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, if you want to rant at us for being a bunch of socialists, which, I don't know, I'll neither confirm nor deny on the podcast, (laughs) (laughs) you can email us at mgmt at littlecontext.com, or you can tweet at me, at Spicy Hogan. I'm at Devarooney. Take care. Thank you. We love you. That was our unhinged episode on The Incredibles 2. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you like listening to A Little Context, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, or subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to your podcast. We're coming back at you next week, so stay tuned. And until then, stay super. Smooches. Thank you.